Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. A few days and a month until spring and hopefully some more sunshine with the hope that it doesn't end up as it has in the Northern Hemisphere in recent weeks. But that's a way off yet. So today we hear back from PhD candidate Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, back from his visit to the Solomon Islands, researching as part of his PhD. He began in Fiji, now to the Solomon Islands, and next stop at the end of the year is Tonga. Then to refugee activist Neil Parra, He and his wife have three daughters, but only one is an Australian citizen due to the fact that she was born in Australia but had to wait 10 years to successfully apply for citizenship. Neil is off later in the week on a walk from Ballarat to Sydney to seek to see the PM and ask him why all refugees and asylum seekers are still waiting for permanent residency. Then to Africa, Zimbabwe, and an anti-sanctions campaign organised by the Zimbabwe Information Centre here in Sydney. The sanctions were placed in 2002, but now are totally irrelevant to the situation in 2023, but instead are blocking the entire country's development strategy. I'll be speaking with the President of the Zimbabwe Information Centre, Dr Meredith Bergman. Then to political economy with Dr Tim Anderson, who will be looking at the changing world in the context of the Middle East, the increasing role of the BRICS countries and the fall of the dollar. But none of the above until we hear from Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. A week, Jan, listener, when unemployment figures showed just how selfish true blue Aussie workers are. Unemployment dropped, a proletariat slap in the face for soon-to-be new Reserve Losses Bank Supremo Michelle Bulldust, who, unlike those workers, puts the national interest first, knows the delicate flower that is the economy needs thousands more people out of work, 14,000 more people out of work, knows less people heading for the dollop as is setting the delicate flower back dangerously. Uh, So are you setting the example, Michelle, heading for the Centrelink queue yourself or services True Blue Aussie or whatever it's now called? What a silly question that the economy needs me to create the environment ensuring more people are out of work. Uh, So what will you do to make life easier for those people, those families? We will increase interest rates, but that will mean they'll have to pay heaps more with, with heaps less. Are you suggesting workers, or non-workers in this case, (laughs) no, seriously, should not share in contributing to the greatest little economic order of them all? After all, it's their own fault for not being unemployed. If they refuse, they would become second in my areas of disgust. Uh, What's first? Dole budgers. So the week that was recommends we show our patriotic concern, our patriotic true blue Aussie spirit, no, more so our patriotic duty. Give up our jobs and do our bit for the country. 
but I won't be able to survive. The cost of living is soaring. Food, utilities, a roof over our heads will we'll end up in the gutter. Stop being selfish. Self, self, self. Don't you care about the economy? Workers are so selfish, aren't they? Summed up P1 headline in Friday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. Markets tip rise at Bulldust's first RBA meeting. Record low jobless jobs fuels rates bet. Showing workers are their own worst enemy, wanting a job. I'm sure we've noticed that all the highly paid experts who tell us we all need to be unemployed for the good of the economy and therefore the country haven't given up their own sinecures or, sorry, their own jobs. Another Freudian, by the way, true, when I checked this, I'd typed God of the economy, probably more appropriate, on which the experts who advise us about um, these things, Socialist Finance Minister Katie Gallagher, asked this week to comment on some economic issues, said, I'll leave that to the people who know about these things. And I thought, but, but hang on, she's the finance minister. Maybe that's fingered the problem, of course, leaving it to the great practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all to tell the government what to do, give it its orders. Caring Business Class Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, warned he would not have supported the appointment of a tainted candidate like the Treasury Secretary. You know, like a, a socialist puppet-like. Uh, but Pete, he, he was appointed by your former big economic guru, Josh Brydem Icebergs. Was, was Josh a closet-tainted socialist puppet? That's a, you know, like defamatory slur on a great big economic guru like. No, you know, he became a tainted, like, you know, socialist puppet when the people got the last election hopelessly, like, wrong. On the other hand, we have to praise Pete for getting something right. Well, he's always right as right can be, but in this case, correct right. Celebrating a by-election win in a safer-than-safe blue-ribbon conservative seat, Pete said the results showed the socialist economic experiment is failing true blue Aussies like. The socialist energy experiment is failing true blue Aussies like you know. And in fairness... We have to agree with him, although it's also fair to say for polar opposite reasons. On energy, Pete clearly wants a return to experimenting with doing absolutely nothing. Well, nothing to change the fossil status quo. Threats, though, to the caring business class status quo. Caring employers are concerned the socialist plans to increase evil union right of entry powers to check whether caring employers are caring could lead to evil union officials entering our family homes, our sacred domain. Well, the homes of families running businesses from home. This is a blatant attack on our right to exploit workers in our own homes. The caring business class expressed its righteous disgust. OK, OK, the caring business class relations minister Tony Bark worse than says the claim is utterly ridiculous. The legislation hasn't even been written yet, but hell, the caring employers know better safe than sorry. Let the socialists know when they're threatening their, the caring employers, basic rights. The pot calling the kettle award of the week a runaway win for shadow big economic guru Angus Tailings, who accused big supremo Anthony all being oozy of misleading claims about the voice proposal. Let's repeat that. 
A leading deny terrenalist non-land, non-people are people no campaigner accuses the yes campaign of misleading claims. Angus, I notice one no pamphlet says the voice will allow terrenalist non-land, non-people to tax us on top of government taxes. Exactly. This reflects the total lack of detail in the proposal. The government has refused to provide us with the detail that terrenalious, non-land, non-people will be able to hit us with a voice tax. Uh, so what are the misleading claims? It's a disgrace. They won't tell us. That's why we want um, more detail on the misleading claims. They won't tell us. Uh, thank you, Angus. Uh, oh, and here's your pot calling the Kettle Award. Congratulations. Thank you. A pleasure. It's an honour. But the big honour of the week, gold, 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 to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin for extracting every ounce of gold out of State Supremo, the pejorative Dan, cancelling the His Most Gracious Majesty Games, pointing out over a few hundred pages, well, slight exaggeration, hyperbole, pages, just how evil is the pejorative D, and why, oh, why did the electorate ignore Lord Rupert's advice in the past three elections? robbing Trublowosi of the chance to beat up on the victims of Her Most Gracious Majesty's and His Most Gracious Majesty's lot's empirical robbery. Speaking of, sure we'd agree, bit of a mistake standing down former robo-debt number one bureaucrat Catherine Cam belled out from her new role in charge of the Forkus 38 mil a day nuclear train killers deal. After all, if she could stop up the lives of thousands and thousands of the poorest of the poor, with a little help from friends like former big supremo Scummo and Stewart and Christian and Allen, there's every chance she could make one hell of a mess, fork, fork us, so to speak, and save us that 30 mil a day, although it might then be wasted, of course, on insignificant incidentals like public housing, transport, education, health, even, dare we say it, make the poorest of the poor a little less poorest of. Although that would encourage them to be even more slothful. And there could be more to spend, of course, because the 38 mil a day doesn't count the cost of dealing with the nuclear waste. But then there's no need to allow for that, because like our Forkers partners, we've got absolutely no idea what to do with it anyway. Not that it matters. Technology will have a few thousand years to come up with the, with the solution. Except climate change, if there is such a thing, won't allow it thousands of years. But on a positive note, they'll solve each other, cancel each other out. Two for the 38 mil a day price of one. Especially, and any wonder Angus said, oh no, we must vote no, especially when the upstart terrenalist non-land, non-people cha challenge our right to dump nuclear waste in their backyard, Kimber in South Trublowasi in this case, take our government to court and, and win. Who do they think they are? They just can't get it through their heads that terrenalist non-land means terrenalist non-land. Back to Lord Rupert, knowing the electorate keeps getting elections wrong, Pity wishes he could adopt the tie system where the generals can reject the leader chosen by the people and now threaten to jail him, leaving the generals still in charge and showing the great value of democracy. If only Lord Rupert must ponder, we had a post-election upper house stacked with Lord Rupert stooges to right the people's wrong.
On one level, he's not totally wrong, because whoever gets elected, usually we don't want anyway. Finally, on top of that decision on the Kimber no longer nuclear waste dumping site, it's becoming apparent the courts are getting out of control. A good corporate citizen, United Lips, became a little less united by sacking, or sorry, sadly having to let go, two evil union delegates just after they became evil. Her Honour declaring House, this for the, for the courts getting out of control, declaring, the court is satisfied that the termination within one month of them agreeing to become union delegates sent a clear message to other employees that engaging with the unions and pressing workplace rights was likely to result in serious consequences in terms of continued employment. Caring employers, the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group, our old mate Innes will cost the workers, and the True Blue Aussie Resources and Energy Caring Employers Profits Association voiced concerns about giving special treatment to union delegates, showing what a danger her honour is. Well, for giving special treatment, United Lips was 120 grand worse off, forcing it, presumably, to hit the emergency button. Good afternoon. And many thanks once again to Mr. Kevin Healy. Wage theft is the symptom of the problem. What we're seeing is obscenely well-remunerated vice-chancellors. It's appalling how badly universities have been treating their casual workers. They want to pretend that they can continue on with business as usual. Well, comrades, we're here to say no. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. In May, Sasha Gillies the Carcass was in Fiji for research for his PhD. His latest trip was to the Solomon Islands, and here he explains the topic of the PhD and the research for his visit for the two Pacific Island nations. For those who haven't heard my previous interviews with Jan or on other shows, I'm currently doing research for my PhD thesis, um, and the title of the PhD is Oceans Apart, Drug Policy and Development in Cuba and the Pacific, Lessons and Opportunities for Cooperation. So looking at these two, you know, these two very different, very disparate parts of the world, Cuba over in the Caribbean and the Pacific Islands, specifically Fiji, Solomon Islands and Tonga, looking at their health systems, looking at how each health system has developed very differently. Uh, of course, in Cuba, we have a socialist development model, socialist healthcare system, it's universal, public, very high quality and excellent uh, health education as well. And in the Pacific, we've seen for a very long time uh, the dominance of a neoliberal healthcare paradigm. So, you know, privatizations, the weakening of healthcare services, very difficult issues with staff retention, healthcare workforce retention, uh, conditions within hospitals, conditions with salaries and remuneration. But they intersect very, very amazingly in the form of Cuba training Pacific Island doctors, nurses and medics at the Latin American School of Medicine for free. So training up the workforces of the Pacific Island countries and they then go back to their countries and they work within the hospitals and the clinics uh, to improve health indicators in their country. So I've been going to, I went to Fiji, we did an interview on that looking at 
uh, the case of Cuban cooperation with Fiji. Uh, and I just returned from the Solomon Islands and I was there looking at the same thing. But in the Solomon Islands, it's been a deeper process and it's been a process that's gone on for quite a bit longer than Fiji. Why is that? Look, the Solomon Islands, even as far as the Pacific Islands goes, really does occupy the, the poorest rung of the Pacific Island countries. The UN still considers Solomon Islands to be one of the least developed countries in the world. Uh, it remains one of the least visited countries in the world. I'm pretty sure it's the seventh least visited country in the world. Um, so this is a country that has faced really significant challenges, development challenges. Um, it's had a very, very weak healthcare system up until recently. The same could be said for education. And there's always been this issue of instability and um, state instability in the Solomon Islands. And that, of course, manifested itself most overtly in the 90s, towards the end of the 90s and into the early 2000s, with what were called the tensions, which was um, ethnic violence between the two major ethnic groups in Solomon Islands. And of course, we heard a lot about that because Australia ended up intervening and sending soldiers into Solomon Islands in, in an effort to restore Order. Now, that, that's actually, you know, in hindsight, become quite a controversial move that Australia made. I did yet to speak with Solomon Islanders about that. But this just sort of, I'm just painting the image of the Solomon Islands. It was a country in desperate need of more healthcare workers, of a better healthcare system, of any sort of health administration system to begin with. That barely existed. But what we had in 2002 was the Solomon Islands and Cuba established diplomatic relations. So Solomon Islands was actually the second or third country after East Timor and Kiribati, I'm pretty sure, to establish relations with Cuba. And then in 2007, we had the first batch of about 30 doctors go across to Cuba to study medicine. And just a year later, they sent another 30. So the Solomon Islands has sent a vast number of doctors since that time across to Cuba. In fact, we're now looking at a situation in Solomon Islands where over 50% of all the doctors in the country have been trained in Cuba. So more than one in two doctors in Solomon Islands were products of this Cuban cooperation. So this is a really, really significant impact that Cuban health training has had in Solomon Islands. I mean, virtually, and this, a similar thing happened in East Timor, we've seen Cuba in many ways actually build the Solomon Islands public health care system and public health care workforce from the ground up. And it's really interesting because, you know, of course, as I said, compared to Fiji, Solomon Islands has very little money, very little in the way of resources, but they've managed to produce really amazing human capital production, even compared to Fiji. Like I will, I will say I visited the hospital in Solomon Islands, the main hospital, the National Referral Hospital, and I did get to compare it with a clinic I saw in Fiji. And the, the Solomon's Clinic, I mean, it still has its problems. You know, there are still very, very old, dilapidated parts of the hospital. But I also saw so many nurses, so many doctors, and a lot of new facilities being built as well, a lot by donor partners. Um, for example, there's a lot of new clinics being built by China in that hospital. Australia used to, but not so much recently. Uh, but just goes to show that the Solomon Islands had a very different sort of approach to Fiji and that it really embraced the Cuban medics and the Cuban training. It didn't offer any resistance, really. It was very open to taking all of this new medical knowledge, the preventive ethos, the community health ethos, and it's really done its best to implement that into the healthcare system. And you can see it. You can see that it's, um, of course, it still has immense problems. It's a very poor country, but it is moving in the right direction. And I really did get that sense. Even more important than the hospital are the primary healthcare clinics. 
How many of those did you visit? Yeah, so I, I was able to visit one in the capital. And this is really the area where the Solomon Islands is now focusing its healthcare uh, policy efforts. And that's chiefly because if they can improve their, as you said, their um, their primary health clinic network, they can really take advantage of the knowledge that the Cuba graduates have. Because, of course, Cuba has this very grassroots, very, very localised healthcare system, incredibly enmeshed into, into the community. They have the um, Medico de la Familia, the family medic, um, who really pretty much knows everyone that he treats, very, very intimately that he or she treats. And the Solomon Islands currently, I was in, I interviewed um, a Dr. Aaron Oritame. He used to be a director in the National Hospital, and he now has his own primary health clinic. He now runs it. Um, and he was actually involved in setting up the program with Cuba. So he went over to Havana, and he met with uh, the Ministry of Health. He went to the university. He went to the Latin American School of Medicine. And he was telling me that now, you know, now that they have all of these doctors trained in Cuba, they're trying to model their health system as best as they can in Cuba's image, or at the very least taking the aspects that work for them to try and take advantage of the knowledge of the Cuba graduates. So to give you an example, particularly in the rural areas, he was saying, before the Cuban program, there were there were some villages, some islands that didn't have any doctors at all, that didn't have a health clinic to speak of. Now, every island has at least one doctor. You know, that's not always sufficient, but at the very least, there is someone that villagers can go to out in those remote islands. And now what the government is doing is they are renovating what are called the area health centres. So those are sort of provincial I guess, healthcare hubs, so provincial hospital sort of facilities that then act as a reference centre for the rural health clinics. And those rural health clinics are the primary healthcare uh, providers. So they're the ones, they will serve about 200 or 300 people. They're as close as it gets, you know, to that family medic in Cuba. And the Solomon Islands government is currently renovating old clinics, old area health clinics, old rural health facilities, and also building new ones. And the hope is that that will allow more of the Cuban medics to filter out into the rest of the country and actually begin to use those sorts of strategies that they learned in Cuba. So, you know, undertaking the community health programs, vaccination drives, being able to spend enough time with patients, you know, to get the bio, the psycho and the social aspects of their lives to understand symptoms or to understand what might be causing a problem. And privileged enough to speak with about 10 graduates of the Cuba program. So they're all either doctors now or nurses, or they're currently completing their last years of internship. And they were really, really passionate about this. They said, we have all of this knowledge. We, we really want to be able to get sent out into those rural areas. We want to be able to help our country. You know, we have all these ideas about implementing the pesquisa, which in Cuba is like the health survey. Cuban doctors go around to each family and they take notes of people at risk of certain uh, illnesses, people who have certain symptoms, people who might be, for example, an alcoholic, um, to be able to monitor the progress of these individuals and treatment if necessary. So these graduates who've come back from Cuba, they want to implement that. They want to implement all of these other Cuban programs or at least trial them in the Solomon Islands context. And they were talking already, you know, they, they told me they've already formulated a list of, for example, local community leaders or tribal leaders out in the rural areas to work with, to establish that sort of very grassroots healthcare campaign. So really, really inspiring stuff from those um, graduates. And as I said, the government is actually making the effort as best it can 
to try and accommodate this. Now, it doesn't always work. You know, the, the Cuba graduates said sometimes, you know, these projects um, take a very long time to finish or sometimes there's some sort of corrupt dealing and facility doesn't end up getting completed. But by and large, this project is going according to plan. So it's hoped that, you know, maybe in the next five years um, and then going forward, you know, even beyond that, we'll begin to see the Solomon Islands primary healthcare network really strengthen. And I think then we'll also be able to see the Cuban graduates being able to make the best use of their skills because they still can use what they learnt in Cuba, uh, but they're still operating very much within, you know, a curative healthcare methodology, which is a little bit different from what they learnt in Cuba. But slowly but surely, they are moving in that direction. And I mean, even if we go to the issue of health education, the Solomon Islands government is now offering through their national university a postgraduate diploma in rural health and rural medicine. And that is targeted specifically to the Cuba graduates because they know that these graduates are the ones that, well, firstly, a lot of them come from the rural areas because they're, you know, they're underprivileged, poorer students, um, but they also want to go back and help the rural areas. So there's this really fascinating interplay between the Solomon Islands government and its local health policy and how it responds to the really massive impact that Cuba has had on their healthcare. Just staying with those graduates for a few minutes, Sasha, how were they chosen to go to Cuba to be trained? And what sort of age are they? And it's a big commitment, isn't it? I can imagine it's a big commitment from their families to sort of leave the young people leave home and they, they're gone for a few years and they've got to, the, the students have got to learn a new language, they've got to fit into a a new culture, they've got to mix with people from other countries who they might never have seen before? Yeah, exactly. That's that's a really important question. And I did speak to them about this. Um, in fact, this was how we sort of broke the ice. I always like to ask them about their experience in Cuba and the sort of journey to how they got there, you know, just as a way to get to know them a bit better and then sort of go into the deeper topics. In the case of the Solomon Islands, it's a bit of a mixture as to how people are selected for the program. So the scholarships are advertised through the Ministry of Public Health. So they, they have a website and they have pamphlets they leave outside the hospitals and other clinics. So that is one of the ways that they'll be advertised. Um, but that, in that particular instance, it is very much up to chance. It is up to one of those medical graduates seeing the physical pamphlet and then following that up and engaging in the process. In other cases, it's also um, advertised at the Solomon Islands National University and also through personal connections as well. In some cases, it will be, you know, that a, a family friend will work in the health ministry or know someone who works in the health ministry, and they'll be like, you know, my, my niece or my cousin or my daughter or my son is out in, in so-and-so village or out in so-and-so province. I know you work in the health ministry. I've heard about the Cuba program. Do you think you could get a scholarship for this person in my family because they're not going to be able to afford it otherwise? And that's also one of the other ways that some of them are able to get across to Cuba. So it's, and this is also an issue that needs to be sort of, you know, fine-tuned a bit because there's no one streamlined way to apply, I guess. It's, it's a very sort of individual experience because there's so many different ways that each student can find out about it. But um, 
in terms of once they arrive in Cuba, you know, they all said at first it was. It was very challenging, you know, because in the Solomon Islands, like in Cuba, you know, there's a, there's very, very close family connections, very, very close community connections, particularly out in the rural areas. So to leave all of that behind for six to seven years is a huge challenge and it's a huge and very, very brave decision that these people make. But they all said to me, you know, it was really hard to be away from family for so long to have to learn Spanish in four months, um, you know, because otherwise they, they couldn't complete the degree if they didn't learn Spanish. But they all said, you know, it was worth it because if we stayed here, there was no opportunity for us. We, we weren't wealthy enough to go to Papua New Guinea or Fiji. So we needed the Cuba program and we needed to see the program through to its conclusion to be able to come back and have a better life and to be able to help our family as well. Not one of them said they regretted it. They said it was definitely difficult at times, but they said we, we needed to do it. We knew that we had to do it because otherwise we would have never got anywhere. We would have we might not even have been able to leave the village. It could have just been, you know, a, a life without any sort of tertiary education. In terms of mingling with the other students from other parts of the world, there is a Pacific contingent, as we now know. You know, there are Fijians, there are Ikiribas students, there are Tongan students, uh, Vanuatu students as well. But the impression I got was that the exchange of cultures and that sort of interplay with, you know, students from Africa, Latin America, Asia, was actually really exciting for the Solomon Islander students. They said that they actually had an amazing time getting to meet new people. They said they actually got help from some of the Spanish speaking and the Brazilian students who spoke Portuguese, which is very similar, so that a lot of friendships are actually formed in those initial months. This is part of the beauty of that Cuban um, healthcare training program is that it, it allows for that sort of percolation of cultures, of experiences, of language, and it exposes people to new ways of thinking about health and new ways of thinking about how health is within a society and how it, what it should be in terms of, you know, its availability, whether or not it should be a right that everyone has uh, or not. Because in the Solomon Islands, there are parts of the country that still really struggle with offering health as, as a fundamental right. So it's really important for the Solomon Island students to see that over there. And when they returned, there's another culture shock when they come back. And this was one of the most interesting and unfortunately one of the saddest things that I heard from them, but very, very interesting in terms of my research and in terms of, I guess, the interplay between, for example, what Cuba offers and what other countries like Australia offer. They said when they returned, and we mentioned this in my Fiji interview, that there was a lot of resistance internally from the Fijian medical authorities to the Cuban graduates. In Solomon Islands, that wasn't the case. That, As I said, there was actually a very significant openness and willingness on the part of the health ministry to absorb these people. But what happened was we had Australian health practitioners and Australian media outlets really attack these graduates, even before they began their internship. Once they returned, you know, there were all of these attack articles talking about how all these students, they're having a lot of difficulty um, translating their medical knowledge from Spanish into English. Oh, they're incompetent. All of these things before they'd even had a chance to actually start or even complete their internship once they returned to Solomon Islands. And I had a personal experience as a result of this sort of history with Australia, where I organized the, the meeting with the National Referral Hospital. And the woman who helped organize it for me, she said on the morning, I'm not sure if they're going to come. They said that they actually might not want to talk to you 
just because you're Australian? And I said, well, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I wasn't expecting it. And I said, well, tell them I studied in Cuba as well. Uh, tell them that I'm not here to, you know, criticize them or put them down or, you know, attack what they've done in Cuba. I'm actually sympathetic. And then they were fine. They came and, you know, as I said, we had an amazing conversation. And at the end, they said to me, they said, oh, we're sorry we we said we might not come, but we've had this really negative experience with Australians in the past where they'll come and they'll just speak down to us and demean us. And we thought because you were Australian, you were going to do the same thing and we didn't want to talk to you. So the trust between these graduates and these other powers that be in the Pacific is really lacking. You know, there's this hostility from Australian health practitioners and from the health ideology that these Australian health practitioners try to push in the Pacific. And I found that, you know, really interesting, but really sad as well that these graduates who, as I said, who are so passionate and talented and really, really enthusiastic, that they get put down in this way and that they get attacked in this way. So once they return to the Solomon Islands, there's an internship. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so as as a part of receiving the medical accreditation in the Solomon Islands itself, uh, there needs to be two years of practical training in the Solomon Islands, which of course Cuba can't offer because it's not there. So they come back to the Solomon Islands. Most of them will do their internship in the National Referral Hospital in the capital city, Honiara, and then they'll go out to the rural areas or back to their village to work as doctors or nurses. Interestingly, that internship is partly managed by an Australian program, Australian Volunteers International. They run, it's called the Simpler Program, which is essentially, I guess it provides the administrative framework for that training. So then the students will do those two years doing their rotations in the different parts of the hospital, you know, emergency department, mental health, diabetes, and other non-communicable diseases, et cetera, et cetera. And then they get their accreditation. Because I guess if we want to um, describe what the Cuba program is, that's like their general medical degree, you know, so they do their six or seven years of general medicine. But in order to get experience, you know, with those sort of specializations and things, that's possible only once they go back to the Solomon Islands and they need to be able to show that they've had experience in their own health system. So that's sort of the way it transitions into proper work in the Solomon Islands. And then are they allocated a certain area or can they choose where they go to? So they can choose where they go to. Um, In fact, one of the doctors, he was from a rural area and he decided to move to the capital city to work in the hospital because, and you know, this is the difficulty as well. There's that real acute sort of shortage of healthcare workers in the rural areas in some, not so much anymore, but still in some, um, but also in the referral hospital in the capital about 10 years ago, there was also an acute shortage of workers given the demand that there was, you know, all of these people coming in to use that one facility. But they can choose. They can choose where they go in the Solomon Islands. But as a part of as a part of their scholarship, they agree that they will stay in the Solomon Islands and work there for at least two to three years after they complete their internship. So this again, this is that whole issue of workforce retention. Um, in the case of the Solomon Islands, we've actually provided, I guess, like a legal mechanism to enforce that that they as a part of their scholarship contract, they have to work in the Solomon Islands for a little bit. But even when I spoke with them, I asked, are you going to stay here after that? Or is it your intention? You know, do you want to go to another country or whatever? And all 10 of them said, no, we're going to stay here. They said, one of them said we were trained with socialist values in Cuba. So naturally we want to stay here. He said, I want to stay here. 
another young woman, she said, I want to go back to my village because there's not enough doctors there. That's where I'm going to work for the rest of my life. And another one still said, I'm going to go out. I'm from the capital city, but I'm going to go out to a rural area because they're the ones that need my help. So the ethos, it's really, really clear that the ethos is very different. The, the people trained in Cuba have this very community-oriented approach to help, this pride in wanting to help their country. I really did see that, and I really did get that impression. And as we said in the case of Fiji, that, that, those values just are not taught in the neoliberal healthcare education institutions in the Pacific. So it's a, you know, it was a really, really inspiring thing to hear from all of these, um, these young doctors and nurses. When you spoke about your time in Fiji, Sasha, you were disturbed at the amount of drug problems in Fiji. Is that the same in the Solomons? The the Solomons is a little bit different. So the impression I got, and I I interviewed Dr. Trina Saleh. She's the head of the emergency department at the hospital. She also often works as as a director. She, you know, she attends all the board meetings. So she's very on top of a lot of health issues in the hospital and in the country more broadly. And she said to me, at this stage, it's not as serious as in other countries. When I was walking the streets, I, I didn't see anyone under the influence, noticeably under the influence, I should say. Um, she said, it is definitely grown. She said, we saw a very big increase in domestic violence cases coming into the emergency department last year and this year, um, and they were related to illicit substance use. But compared to Fiji, compared to other countries in the Pacific, it's not as severe an issue yet. The main illicit substance that is used at this point is marijuana. Cocaine, heroin, ice, these are rarer substances in the Solomon Islands. They are there. And Trina said an issue is we don't have the data necessary to make a definitive statement. Um, Unfortunately, there's a bit of a disconnect, for example, with um, the law enforcement service and healthcare. So oftentimes people who are under the influence will get taken straight to a police facility and then a mental health worker will have to go to that cell or to the jail. And as a result, a lot of people who use drugs don't even get registered in the official health system. So Trina said she thinks it's a more severe and widespread issue than 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 it might appear, Um, but they just don't always have the data or the consistency in data collection to make that statement. There needs to be a lot more work done on that. There needs to be, you know, I would say a a much longer period of research, you know, with someone or a group, really a team, staying there, visiting the the prison facilities, visiting the different healthcare clinics and trying, trying to collect data on illicit substance use, because um, as as Trina said, it's yeah it, that it, there's a bit of a discrepancy in in what she can say and the data they have. It's it's a very incomplete data set at the moment. She said it's it's definitely there. It is growing. She's noticed it. But if you compare it to Fiji or you know even Tonga, where I'm going to go later in the year, based on what I've read, it is not as severe a crisis as in those countries. And that's down to the fact that Solomon Island is, as I said, it's, it's, a, it's a less visited country. It's, it's not in one of those major sort of, you know, tourism. It's not a major tourist attraction. It's not a major commercial maritime route yet. It is becoming that now um, with Chinese assistance. But I guess the conditions that, that the country needs for, that, for drugs to become a significant issue maybe haven't fully developed yet. But it's definitely one to monitor. To sum up your time there, Saita? Really, really uh, hopeful 
because as as I said with Fiji, and as you said just then, I was a bit disturbed and I was saddened by these issues that that were becoming that are becoming overwhelming for the Fijian healthcare system. But it's it's very very encouraging to see that another country has gone in the other direction, has embraced the Cuban training and has done its best to accommodate um, and utilize the skills that those new doctors and medics from the Latin American School of Medicine have. So it's, it's almost like we can see what's possible when a Pacific country you know, takes full advantage of what Cuba offers, when you know, they, they try their best to, to calibrate the health system or utilize the doctors or make them feel comfortable, make them feel like they're a part of the healthcare system. And I think it's something to, to keep monitoring because, as I said, the Solomon Islands, of course, still has very severe health issues. It's a poor country. It's a least developed country. But it is moving in the right direction, and I could really see that, and I could feel that when I spoke with people, that they are happy with the way things are progressing, even though it's slow, even though it can be incomplete, even though it stalls, even though we still have problems with healthcare workforce retention and all these other issues, it is going in the right direction. And that is something that I think is really good to see. So next stop, Tonga, later in the year. Yes, we're aiming for sometime in November for Tonga. And the PhD candidacy goes on. And it goes on. We're now writing up all of the uh, information collected in Fiji and Solomon Islands. And then, yeah, at the start of 2025, it'll be fully finished. I'll hand it in. But we've got one more trip to go before that. Good. Thanks very much, Sasha. No worries. Thanks, Jan. And we wish Sasha all the best with the rest of his PhD research. The fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes for fears, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Many people enjoy a leisurely walk at the weekend along the creek, into parkland, perhaps around the neighbourhood, ending in a coffee shop. But that's not what Neil Parra is planning, far from it. In early August, he begins a thousand kilometre walk for freedom from Ballarat to Marrickville in Sydney. The office of the Honourable Anthony Albanese at his electoral office. This is a huge undertaking, Neil, something I'm sure you've put a lot of thought into. But can we talk about your family's arrival in Australia? You were labelled as unauthorised maritime arrivals. What were you hoping your life would be? When we saw the uh, Australian Navy bo- Navy ships there and we kind of thought, okay, our life is going to be uh, in a peaceful and better life, I was able to provide, uh, make a, a good life for my children. But 
even after 11 years, uh, I didn't make that. But I was thinking when I saw the Australian saw, I, when I saw the Australian uh, people, I thought, okay, I am in a better country now. I am in a safe country. But it looks like 99.9 percentage better than where I was from. But still, uh, we didn't get any safe. We didn't get any certainty. We don't have any freedom yet for many refugees, including my family and children. That's what I was dreaming. When I, uh, as soon as I arrived in Australia, I thought, okay, we're now getting the freedom. But still not. When did you arrive in Ballarat? And I'd imagine you got a good reception there because there's a community in Ballarat who support refugees, asylum seekers. Yes, there was a group, but I did not know there was a group. I just arrived to Ballarat after a suggestion from the Department of Immigration. I arrived to Ballarat in 2013, September. Then as soon as I arrived to Ballarat, the Red Cross, that time my caseworker, case manager or caseworker, they have connected me with the refugee advocate. Also, I started to write some uh, notes and put on the neighbor's letterboxes. Uh, I am Neil, uh, a refugee from Sri Lanka. I come to this, uh, live in Ballarat, but I couldn't speak any English, so I couldn't write better. But in, in that, I don't, re- I didn't, I don't remember now how did I make the sentences. But somehow I made some sentences and uh, informed to the neighbors, and that's how I started to know the people in Ballarat. And what sort of stories were they telling you about how they could help you? They didn't tell any anything that how they can help me or anything. They just, uh, uh, you mean who? You're just a community or the group? Your neighbours. Neighbours, yes. Send, send us a chocolate and welcome notes uh, and the cards are saying, welcome, thanks for letting us know. That's only they said at that stage. How were your daughters yeah, getting on? When we come to Ballarat, only myself was able to uh, understand at least a little bit of English. Even my children, they, they couldn't. Uh, my oldest one was the kindergarten age, but she didn't go to kinder until we come to Ballarat. They had a few few weeks in Dandenong area uh, for a kindergarten, but they didn't do that well, only only few days or few weeks. Then we came to Ballarat and the last term, uh, only the last few weeks, she, uh, my oldest daughter went to the kindergarten. She couldn't understand any. If if the kindergarten teacher says something, she couldn't understand. And it was continued until the grade two when she got to um, she's had the, when she was at the primary school until grade two. She had a really difficult time understanding English because we don't speak English at all at home because we don't we didn't know English either. So it was very difficult for them. And now all my three children are best readers and writers. They're writing stories. They're writing poems. They are good readers also. And your wife? Uh, my wife is uh, also here. Uh, at the early stage, she was looking after the kids. Uh, and now she's a volunteer like me. You were, said you were a caseworker with the, the Red Cross. What were they able to put forward to get you permanent residence. Did you understand what was happening? Um, no, because I couldn't speak English. I did understand a little bit, but I couldn't speak English. 
my english understanding was based on the what we were at when we were at the school we we were ha- we had english as a second language but uh, no, but i didn't i didn't take any serious uh, interest on in learning other language so it was difficult for me and them to have a div- communication between us so we need always uh, interpreters the answer would i could say no i didn't understand and then your third daughter was born how did that change things for you did she then become an australian citizen how does it work when we were uh, in the detention center she was born uh, and through interpreter uh, de- uh, department informed us even if she born in australia she is not uh, an australian citizen and unless she lives here continuously 10 years she can become automatically become an australian citizen after 10th 10th birthday but we should apply for the evidence of citizenship so uh, we did that uh, when she had a 10th birthday last year and i applied for a uh, citizenship uh, evidence certificate or something we got it within 30 hours we got it uh, approved and what is the status for you your wife and your other two daughters we are in limbo we don't have any any legal status here but uh, the second one is a stateless child the people saying stateless children if they live in a the country they are citizen of that country but i don't know how to get that uh, citizenship for her as well because there's the, there's a way that there's a stateless clinic in in melbourne but i tried to contact with them i couldn't make a contact i'm still trying to but uh, or oh, people say stateless children will be eligible for uh, citizenship just waiting everything here i don't know at this stage we are limbo we, are, we don't have any other legal status how do you survive neil you and your family are you able to work at all no i i'm not allowed to work because i don't have work rights i don't have uh, my family no have visas at all we rely on the community uh, in the ballarat university of ballarat and some surrounding places as well and the children are happy at school they are very happy they are very happy at school but they are starting to realize what's happening to the parents what's going to happen to them that sort of things they are just starting to worry about their lives so because of the government keeping the or punishing the parents they are not punishing the parents they are just punishing the future gener future and generations future leaders or future people who are going to take over this world and they are going to look after the even after the world and people they are punishing those people by punishing these people by because of we came by boat it's not a way to punish those children do you have contacts with other families in a similar situation i am trying for the last 10 years i couldn't find anyone but there should be many but i couldn't find anyone when did you decide to set up the union of australian refugees this year in march uh, the refugees have a sit down rally four day sit down rally in in front of canberra parliament house when we were there we had we were sitting there four days and in this four days lots of people they were 
going visiting to Canberra or even politicians they they had a busy uh, busy week I, I knew that uh, anyway so no one come to say hello no one come to ask why are you here no one didn't ask so I thought because of we are refugees it's not uh, making sense or I don't know what English I can use it doesn't make them to come forward and talk to us even no Australians were there uh, there are, even in in Canberra there are a lot of uh, um, advocating organizations and groups like Rural Australian for Refugees and Refugee Action Collective. There are many groups in Canberra as well, but only only refugee by by ourselves. So it was easy for the politicians to ignore us. Four days that we were seen but not heard. At that point, at the fourth day, I decided to do something and I had I discussed with some other refugees, everyone, uh, the people who well, I have discussed, they agreed with me. So we have started a, a Union of Australian Refugees. I have started with their supports, but at the, at the moment uh, we are trying to get more members, but I don't have any members at this stage. That's the reason that I started this Union of Australian Refugees. The motto is, be seen, be heard. That's the way I, I created that motto. <laughs> well, from there, you've decided to walk to Sydney. That's a huge undertaking. Yes. Uh, so I created a union of Australian refugees and uh, a lot of people supporting. But this now I decided to do this work for freedom is how long we going to every, everyone just we see that we oh, union of Australian refugees I have created and I have created a Facebook page. I have created a Facebook group and I have created a WhatsApp group as well. There were so many refugees were in that group and when they were granted uh, ROS visa, they are disappearing. They are leaving the groups. They are going. So it's it's it. We realize so many refugees still waiting for that. So many refugees going, and this is tormenting them. So when they see their friends, when they see their in in some some refugees in the same family, someone getting the ROS visa, someone not. Someone asked to go back. So then we, I decided, oh, yeah, I, I also can't because my children are also growing. It's time to do a big awareness thing. How can I do this? Then I, I thought, okay, walk for the freedom. So walking, walking is an Australian thing. And I feel I am an Australian. It's an Australian thing, walking for some causes, good causes. 1,000 kilometers is a long time. Are you in training? I am doing some training, not a good training, but I am normally a good walker as an ACS volunteer. Um, I go to a lot of land search and sometimes we do uh, five kilometers walk is equal to no less than 35, 40 kilometers. <laughs> I think I can do that. To do such a trip, you need a great deal of support. Where's the support coming yeah. from? I advertised to, through the uh, Facebook post and also well, one day this, uh, uh, I didn't meet advocate yet. Her name is, uh, she's having an uh, asylum seeker solidarity or something Facebook group. She contacted me, her name is uh, Sumi and she contacted me and said, Neil, you should go to uh, attend a one on Zoom meeting with the Refugee Action Collective and let them know about your work. And then I joined the meeting online and I, I spoke about my idea. And from there, 
Kiran from Refugee Action Collective just come forward to support this work with the organizing the team. So he done a great job, or he not done yet, he's doing great job. He's doing a marvelous job to organize all these uh, support teams. How many days do you believe it will take you? Leaving on the 1st of August and uh, with including the rest days, uh, it's going to be expected to be there by 8th of September. So you have to have somewhere to sleep every night? You have to have food and yes, water I, every day? Initially, yeah, initially I had planned to live in a tent or stay on a tent. And I call all the tent and everything ready. But now in some places I will be staying with some people's house. And of course I will in some places I will still live on the tent. And supplies of food and water along the way? Most of things I am carrying and uh, in, some, in some cases and in some places people are trying to help me just with the food and drinks and everything people will help in some places but some, most of the places I will be carrying and I will have all my picnic items like tent burners everything yeah what do you expect to find when you get to Marrickville I am trying to get an appointment from uh, our Prime Minister Anthony Albanese I know he is very busy but just if if I can get an appointment with him, that would be great. Uh, otherwise, someone will come. So I have started a petition online on the change.org forward slash work for freedom, where I am telling my why I am doing this work and what, what I am going to do with the Prime Minister if I can meet him. So the, there are three points that I can tell everyone, but I will discuss a few other things as well if I get a chance. But these three things are my priority. My first priority is all children who were born to refugees uh, in Australia and when they are given citizenship by birth or anything, they should have equal rights like other Australian children. My 10-year-old Australian child is an Australian citizen now she doesn't have any other rights like other Australian children has because Services Australia says, no, she is under 16 and the parents are, or legal guardians not eligible for these things, so we can't give that. So technically, even she is Australian, she doesn't have anything. So when she's grown up, one day she's going to say, the government says people who are citizen and we are, we are here for Australian, but she is not looked after. Even even every speech, the prime minister or the politician or even previous government or any politician, when they talk Australian first, they say, when they say Australian first, my child is an Australian now. She got an Australian citizen. She got a certificate also in her hand to anyone to show. But she is not included in that announcement each time when the politician says something for Australian. So this has to be changed. That's my first one. The second one is the children, like my children and my children, there are many other refugee children. They went to school or they go to school, who go to Australian school, should be given citizenship uh, or permanent, permanent residency with the pathway to become Australian citizen. And this is the right thing to do so. These two, the first two I said is a very important and priority things to look after the younger people, look after the children. So we all, the world always fighting for the children. 
So look after those children. And Australia is renowned for the humanitarian. And we are renowned for the humanitarian. We are part of the, Australia is part of the declaration for humanitarian rights, human rights and everything. When they decide the laws and everything, policy, when they create the policy few ages ago, Australia was part of that. But they're breaching that policy, but they were part of it and they are breaching. Those two things should be happen immediately without any delay. And the third thing is they have announced 19,000 TPV and SHGV holders will be given permanent residency visa or resolution of status visa. I don't know what is resolution of status visa actually has any hidden point or anything. We don't know, but they announced that. When Andrew Giles announced on the 13th of February 2023 about this 19,000 people will be given permanent visa or ROS visa, he has missed out those or other people are here as well. So what I'm asking is already those who are in this land of opportunity, they should be included in this announcement, in this visa process. Because it's already too late, 11 years with the people's lives, it's too late. So what I'm asking is those who are already in this land of opportunity should be included in that announcement and should be included in the visa process. It's already too late for all of us. It's 11 years, they are playing with the human lives. It's not the human rights. We just thinking this, we, every refugees were waiting to, for a change of government because they were thinking this government would be the more humanitarian. But they're not solving that, but they, they saw a little bit, but not much, not enough that. The children are waiting, adults are waiting. We came young, we dying, dying as an old without doing anything. We want to do many things in this country. We want to contribute. Let us to do this. Good for the country, good for us, good for everyone. Neil, how old are your two eldest children now? The oldest one is 15 and the second one is 13. If nothing changes in the near future, it's going to affect their opportunities to maybe go to university and find employment. Yes, definitely it will affect. I don't know how they're going to school. If the last yesterday someone asked me about that, because we don't have visa, they go to school. I don't know what how is that happening, but they can't go to uni. They can't go to TAFE. They want to go to uni, and they have a dream. My do, my oldest daughter want to be a um, cardiologist, and she has a, a in, some some cardiologist in the special team. She want to do that, and the other one want to do uh, uh, psychiatrics or something. I don't know. So they have an aim, they have a goal. Their goal will be spoiled if I don't give them a certainty. So if I, as a father, if I should give them a certainty, it's not in my hand. If someone could hold a power and they're controlling everyone, I want them to change. I want them to open their heart because of these younger children, because they can't find the jobs, they can't do the TAFE at least, but even they want to do the uni. She's 15 years old. I don't know how long she's going to be at the school, or I don't know how long she can study. A lot of schools, or even government school or public school, private school, they're supporting refugees. They let them just get the education. But what's the point while, while they're studying, 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 
at that one stage if they couldn't contribute to the country while they're dreaming to contribute they think as they are australian they never think about they are sri lankan they are iranian they are vietnamese they are afghanistan these children always thinking we are australians finally neil i'm sure they're very proud of you taking on this walk they're very proud of that but also they're very uh, nervous when i decide to do this uh, my oldest daughter asked me that do you want to do this please write to the politician uh, our local mp federal mp and tell her that i want to do that i uh, i can't do that i did that but she didn't reply but i i did that uh, sorry i had to do this but i can't do this walk i don't know how can i i can do this 7000 km but i had to do this because of my family i just told her my family see anyway so politicians ignored our request uh, not only my family's request they may ignore every single refugee's request all right well i can say congratulations on yeah on this venture so, uh, one more thing one yes. more thing i can say before we go is uh, tormenting not only for refugees not only for uh, refugee children this government or any government uh, that's in australia that's we are in australia so i can i i can talk about this government means here in australia so this government keeping us in limbo and vulnerable is tormenting our family straight away and our our family and friends back in sri lanka also the people who are regardless of the weather regardless of any condition they are always on street fighting for us they are 24 hours uh, uh 24/7 they are working even see look at this my work i can't make this success because these people's hard work i am just they just told me neil do you do the training you do the work don't worry about anything we do that and i receive my emails from their communication every single minute they are 24 hours they are working hard to do something better for those people in their hands so the government should at least do better thing for the refugees for their own australians in in their terms we are australian but we are not proper in a officially australian but there are of, of officially australian people they born and bred here they all fight for us so they, the government can look after them by giving us a good news when they give us a good news they are happy they'll be very proud of them we will be proud of everyone the government made at least for them as well did you get my point i do and i've been speaking with neil para who just in a week or so is off on a 1000 kilometer walk to meet the prime minister hopefully at his marrickville office in sydney wondering how to pay your donations to 3cr radiothon it's easy You can pay online at 3cr.org.au or call us any weekday with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash or simply post your check or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us exactly which program you'd like your donations to go towards. CR stay tuned stay radical
Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. The Zimbabwe Information Centre has launched an online anti-sanctions campaign to request the Australian government to remove its now misnamed smart sanctions against a few Zimbabwean personalities because they are now perversely blocking the entire country's development strategy. But many people might be wondering why Zimbabwe, indeed exactly where is Zimbabwe and what the connection is with Australia. To explain this and other issues, I spoke with Dr. Meredith Bergman, the president of the Zimbabwe Information Centre, and asked her first to take us back in recent history of Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, which was formerly southern Rhodesia, was the subject of sanctions from around the world when the illegal Ian Smith regime was running the country. After 1980, when a liberation movement under the control of mostly Robert Mugabe came to power, these sanctions weren't happening. Mugabe became more and more autocratic as time went on, and by the late 1990s was being very autocratic. There were illegal invasions of uh, of farmland, and most of the farmland was sold out to Robert Mugabe's comrades, or you know, his, his fellow looters. It became a very vicious and uh, predatory regime. So, a organisation called the MDC, the Movement for Democratic Change, arose mostly out of the trade union movement. And in the late 1990s, in 1999, in fact, the MDC was formed, the Movement for Democratic Change. And there were elections throughout the early 2000s, which the MDC mostly won. But, of course, Mugabe just refused to accept these these elections and continued to rule, becoming more and more autocratic all the time. So sanctions were imposed on him in the early 2000s and and in 2002 Australia imposed sanctions on Zimbabwe really talking about the human rights violations and particularly aiming at at Mugabe and then later it became smart sanctions which were meant to be aimed at individual leaders of Mugabe's government And I remember um, approaching the Australian government at this time, asking them to police the smart sanctions because some of these leaders of ZANU-PF, Mugabe's party, were actually, their children were students at Australian institutions. And I can still remember a bit of debate within ourselves whether we should target the children of these people. But in the end, we believed we had to. And, in fact, the government at that time did send home 
from um, Australian universities uh, a number of Zimbabwean students. But the problem with the sanctions regime is that since the removal of uh, Mugabe in 2017 and his death in 2019, there hasn't been much reason for the sanctions to continue. And in actual fact, they've been very damaging to the ordinary people of Zimbabwe. You mentioned there about children of people from Zimbabwe studying at Australian education institutions. One not part of that clique, though, was a young woman who who actually went back to Zimbabwe, and I'm talking about Sekai Holland. Can you talk about her for a few minutes? Because she was a very important part of that struggle. Oh, yes. Sekai was much earlier in these uh, sanctions. Yes. In the 1960s, Sekai came to Australia to go to university, and... By the late 1960s, she had, well, she'd married Jim Holland, an Australian, and became very involved with the anti-apartheid movement in Australia uh, and was very prominent during the anti-Springbok campaign in 1971. So she became very well known at that time. She also became very good friends with a lot of the Aboriginal activists, and she actually also worked as a Builders Labourer and uh, became very involved with the Builders Labourer's Green Bands in the early 1970s too. So she was very much part of the progressive movements in Australia and she was a very striking person to see. She she used to wear a big gold turban and was well over six foot and was rather beautiful and very, very dominant in any situation. And she, she became a good friend of a lot of us. And she went back to... Zimbabwe to, well, she actually went back to Africa to be part of the liberation movement in Zimbabwe. She has recognised war veteran status from the Zimbabwean government and people because she did work with the frontline revolutionary movements of both ZANU and ZAPU and was part of the war to liberate Zimbabwe, actually. And after that, when Mugabe came to power, that she wasn't totally keen on Mugabe, but she did go. But she and her husband went back to be part of the the nation building exercise after 1980. Um, Sekai taught in tertiary education organisations. She she had a journalism degree, and so she taught communications. And Jim worked in a number of areas, um, building water pumps, and later beginning Zimbabwe's, you know, foundling um, IT industry. So he was, he's was he been very important in the nation-building exercise. But in that, by, by 1999, Sekai had decided, as had any other Zimbabweans, that Mugabe was just an autocrat and a tyrant and had to go. And that's when she came to Australia and asked her friends from the early 70s, the anti-apartheid movement days, she asked us to become involved in supporting the democratic project in Zimbabwe. And so we set up an organisation called the Zimbabwe Information Centre. And we have been supportive of democracy and freedom issues in Zimbabwe ever since. 
and have been back to Zimbabwe on numerous occasions. And we became very supportive of Morgan Changarai, who was the leader of the movement for democratic change until he died oh, about five years ago now. She's paid a heavy price for her support for democracy, though, hasn't she? Oh, absolutely. In 2008, I think it was, after the MDC had won the election and Mugabe still refused to go, Sekai was part of a group that was holding a prayer meeting just outside of Harare, and the Mugabe thugs and the police arrested her, took her into the police station, and broke many, many bones in her body. They jumped on her, they kicked her. She was brutally, brutally tortured. Amnesty International used uh, a photograph of her recovering in hospital as a part of their anti-Mugabe campaign. It was such a terrifying image of her swollen, swollen and bruised arms and legs. She was eventually... They managed to get her to a hospital in South Africa and then eventually to hospital in Australia. And she was in and out of hospital for a year having treatment for her her terrible injuries. So what happened to the movement for democratic change? Is it still there or has it been superseded? When Mugabe was left power, power, really because of a coup by uh, Emerson Manangagwa, who is now the president, a lot of the steam went out of the opposition to the ruling party. And with the death of Morgan Changarai from cancer, the leading lights of the... And also Gibson Sabanda died. There was a lot of deaths in the leadership of the MDC. Uh, A lot of it from AIDS, which was never properly... There was a lack of openness about what was happening about HIV and AIDS. So the MDC split into a number of different organisations and the the largest of those is now led by a man called Nelson Chamisa, who we actually brought out to Australia um, at one stage when he was a leader of the youth organisation. But Nelson Chamisa has gone into a sort of alliance with the old Mugabe forces uh, around Grace Mugabe, Mugabe's uh, uh, widow. And so a lot of what... I mean, basically, Sekai is now in the situation of not really supporting either the MDC remnant under Nelson Chamisa or the government of, of Emerson Manangagwa. But she does acknowledge that things are much better under Emerson Manangagra than they were when Robert McGargy was there. She says the fear and the interference in everyday Zimbabweans' lives has really uh, gone now under the Manangagra government. Why we are arguing that the sanctions should go is because they're not really just targeting the leadership anymore. They are becoming very damaging to the economy of Zimbabwe and to the ordinary people. For instance, with the Australian sanctions, for instance, Telstra won't have any dealings with uh, Zimbabwe, although it's not clear that that should be part of the sanctions, but it is. 
which makes communication very difficult for people who have, you know, the expat families. Uh, many Zimbabweans are now living in Australia. The banks won't have any direct um, connection with Zimbabwe because they're very afraid of doing the wrong thing and then suddenly being subject to international fines. So trying to send money to Zimbabwe just, you know, to, to your cousin or your mother or something is almost impossible. There's very little foreign investment because the people who would be doing foreign investment fear that they might be subject to the sanctions regime. And so the economy in Zimbabwe is really stagnating in a terrible way. And um, there, there's actually hunger in a country which should be the um, food belt of, uh, of Africa. It was always known as the food basket of South Africa in the past. And so many people have left. And that's very sad too because the people that have left are the educated uh, middle class that can actually afford to get away. When you think about it, so many of our great nurses in hospitals and nursing homes are, are in fact Zimbabwean and Zimbabwean trained. IT people, engineers, I mean, Zimbabwe does still have a, a, a fine education system which produces these uh, graduates who then flee uh, as soon as they can to other countries. And that part of that is because of the sanctions regime. And also, like many of those dictatorships around the world, Mugabe and his wife took an unknown number of diamonds and money out of the country. Is she still in the country or is she gone? Grace Mugabe is still there, as far as I know, and she did, in fact, as you say, loot a large amount from the from the people, the, the amounts vary depending on who you talk to, but very, very many millions of, of dollars in, in things like diamonds. Um, and, you know, she's built a couple of huge mansions, one's known as a palace. And I think she has uh, property interests in parts of Asia too. But that really isn't the problem now, although it would help enormously to get that money back. The problem is that there's no proper investment going on in the industries that need to be happening in Zimbabwe. Well, Australia wasn't the only country to put sanctions on. You've got the US and the EU as well. Have they lifted their sanctions? Look, I'm not totally sure whether they, they have also lifted sanctions. I, I do know that when the ZIC, the Zimbabwe Information Centre, uh, started this petition to lift sanctions and putting the reasons in it, a bit what I've just told you, the fact that it's really hurting the people rather than the, the leaders that were meant to be uh, hurting from these sanctions. But I, I understand that we're the first people to have started a petition to stop the sanctions and, and the uh, various uh, political organisations in Zimbabwe are very pleased that we've done this. So we're rather hopeful that we get... We already have a, a very large number of signatures and we're hoping it becomes even more significant. And who are you aiming this petition at? Well, the Australian government in, in, in the first place, yes. 
And um, I, I think they will be likely to think about it. I mean, Zimbabwe has never been a, a partisan issue in Australian politics. It's quite interesting that whether it's a coalition government or a Labor government, there was support for the MDC and there was a great criticism and action against the Mugabe government. So we don't expect the issue of stopping sanctions as becoming a partisan issue. I mean, if Penny Wong decided to do it tomorrow, I can't see anyone now arguing that we need to keep sanctions against the Manangagwa government. I mean, if you're going to sanction the Manangagwa government, there are plenty of other authoritarian leaderships in other parts of the world that you could also be aiming sanctions at. Would lifting these sanctions help Australia in any way? No. They've never been... uh, Well, in fact, you could even argue that they have been, to some extent, a problem for for Australian businesses, especially the uh, sanctions around mining, because Australians are obviously very interested in being involved with mining ventures in Zimbabwe because there are very similar issues to do with mining in Zimbabwe as there is in Australia. Can you tell us where this petition can be signed? How do people get their signature on this petition? I would Google ZIC petition, drop Australia's smart sanctions on Zimbabwe and the site should then appear. Or... And for more details, you can follow the link, which is much easier, which is the HTTPS colon two forward slashes. Say no to sanctions, all one word, dot com slash. Just finally, Meredith, have you been back to Zimbabwe in recent years? Oh, I was actually in Zimbabwe in 2017 during the coup. Quite by accident, of course. I didn't cause the coup or know that it was going to happen. We had um, been um, at the opening of uh, an Australian exhibition in um, Johannesburg. It, it was an exhibition called Australians Against Apartheid. And it was about, the, among other things, the 1971 Springbok tour. And a group of us, about five of us, went up to Zimbabwe to stay with um, Sekai and check out what was happening. I mean, I've been backwards and forwards to Zimbabwe probably a dozen times. But in 2017, we were there uh, as the coup actually happened. And it was very weird because being in a city where a sort of violent change of government is taking place and everything was just silent and all the, the streets were reasonably deserted. and But the rumours were amazing. Everyone had a a rumour about someone being killed somewhere or this or that building being under attack and it it was extraordinary. Didn't have any impact on you getting home? No. (laughs) By the time we got to the airport, we were pretty keen to get home because, uh, I mean, Harare is quite a difficult place to stay anyway and with nothing particularly working during the... uh, during the coup, uh, we were very pleased to get to the airport and get home. 
the Robert Mugabe Airport, might I say. I think it's been changed now. Yes. Good job. Thank you very much, Meredith. Okay. Thanks, Dan. And I've been speaking with Dr Meredith Bergman, who's the president of the Zimbabwe Information Centre. Focus on Myanmar, art, music and resistance. Join Past the Mic Media at Black Spark on Wednesday the 26th of July for a presentation about art, music and resistance since the February 2021 military coup of Myanmar. Featuring a statement and music from Chaw Chaw and Myanmar punk band The Rebel Riot, the photography of 2023 World Press Photo Award winner Mal Kam Wah, and a presentation and Q&A with Myanmar photographer Mako Nang. Tickets are on a sliding scale via Humanitix. As always, no one turned away. More details are available on the Black Spark event page. Focus on Myanmar, art, music and resistance. 5.30pm, Wednesday the 26th of July at Black Spark. Hosted by Pastor Mike Media, a 3CR supporter. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. The focus now is the Middle East in context of the changing world, the rise of BRICS and the fall of the dollar. And to do that, I spoke with Dr Tim Anderson, former senior lecturer in political economy at the University of Sydney. Can you first explain, Tim, what you mean by the term the changing world? The changing world is something that's being recognised even in the US that we've been shifting away from a world that's dominated by one big superpower into a time when there are different poles of power. It's often called a multipolar world. Uh, and that has to do with the rise of China and Russia and the BRICS, the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation, and also the big regional organisations in Latin America and the new moves to have some integration in amongst the African countries, you know. So in other words, the the centre of the world being the old colonial powers is is dying basically and the, the dominant role of the dollar is also beginning to disintegrate. It's still there but it hasn't but it's it's shifting clearly. So the Western dominated institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, the WTO, all of those things are far less important now and there's a big indeed there's a big stampede towards some new, uh, the new Eastern Bloc coalitions like the BRICS, for example. All right, well, let's start with the Middle East. What does it change from and what is it changing into? So the, the wars in the Middle East in this century, in the last 20 years in particular, 20-odd years, have been part of a project which the US called or the Washington called uh, a new Middle East, to create a new Middle East, which was going to be then effectively dominated by the US and its NATO satellites and its regional 
not exactly allies, but um, agents like the Israelis and the Saudis, for example. Now, those wars, for the most part, failed. I mean, they succeeded in destroying little Libya, basically, but the the war in Iraq is failing. The war against Syria failed. The attempt to destroy Iran has failed. The attempt to destroy the Ansarullah-led government in Yemen has failed. So they're in the process of failing that big project, basically, and that has important implications because the idea of a new Middle East, which would be mentored by Washington and its and its satellites, um, was to a large part motivated by the desire to prevent integration across the Eurasian supercontinent and the role of Russia and China in the region. And that's that's certainly failed because the role of Russia and China in the Middle East region has increased substantially. Uh, and while the whole Eurasian thing is still in play because it seems like the US has achieved some success in dividing Europe from Russia, nevertheless, the, the rise, as I said, of these multipolar institutions, the Shanghai Cooperation and the, the BRICS are, are proceeding apace. How secure are those countries in the Middle East after, as you say, many years of war? And Iraq, Iran, not so much, but Lebanon, and then you go to Yemen. How secure are they now? They're not secured yet. That's why this is a process um, undergoing at the moment. Uh, we haven't reached some any sort of end point with that. But, and, and indeed... The most powerful part of the hybrid wars being waged against all of those countries has been the economic war, the blockade, which, of course, the US is able to impose these sorts of economic blockades on on countries, um, not so much on Russia, because Russia is a big country, but certainly Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq. It's able to damage those countries because international finance is still dominated by the dollar and by the Washington-dominated SWIFT system, which is in Europe, basically. So the power that Washington has in terms of world domination is through the media to a large extent. There's still a very strong U.S. domination of the media, including the social media, but in particular finance, because technologically and in terms of commerce, the U.S. has not dominated the world for some time. We know that the center of production these days has moved to East Asia, basically. But in finance, the U.S. has enormous influence. And so that's the, the next step in this process of moving from a unipolar to a multipolar world is the shift um, or the construction of alternatives to the dollar and the SWIFT system, basically. And, and while the U.S. controls that well, global financial system, it is able to effectively punish uh, independent countries who have tried to remain independent and outside its sphere of domination. Can you explain how the power over the money system works for the US and how it's got to the stage where it is? One important aspect of it is the, the role of the dollar, of course, and the fact that the OPEC countries in the 70s were persuaded to denominate all of the oil sales in dollar means that everyone around the world is reliant on having supplies of dollars to be able to purchase things internationally because oil is being sold in dollars, so-called petrodollars, basically. Then you have the Swiss system, which is based in Belgium, but it's an information-sharing system between banks. Now, it wasn't set up as a North American institution, but the US, through typical bullying, for example, when the US wanted to block Iran about a decade or so ago from the financial system, it demanded that the SWIFT system, which regulates all of the information exchanges between banks, 
um, blockade Iran or else they were going to impose um, sanctions on the Swiss system itself. Now, that system is important because basically it's become institutionalized in the sense that a lot of banking conventions, including things like money laundering laws and anti-terrorism laws and so on, are sort of regulated through that system. So in other words, the pretext for surveillance of all financial transactions is enforced by this SWIFT system, which the US has bullied into submission to complying with its will to, to comply with the, the unilateral economic, so-called economic sanctions the US imposes on more than 20 countries these days. So in the old political economic analysis of this, it was about the penetration of foreign capital and US capital into other countries under liberal rules. Well, it's very illiberal now, the system where the US passes a law and says, now all transactions with Venezuela or with Nicaragua or with Syria or with Lebanon, such as are decided by the US Treasury, are now blocked and banned. And we will we will fine, for example, European banks if they continue to do business with Iran or Cuba or whoever it is, basically. So that type of power through the information exchange, the key information exchange system, which is the Swiss system. Now, these days, it's not the only one. There are, there are Russian and Chinese and Iranian systems set up precisely because uh, they're trying to escape that US domination. But it hasn't, it hasn't sort of come into reality yet. The key alternatives to the BRICS, to the SWIFT system and the, the rule of the dollar are really being created today in Beijing and, and Moscow and to some extent in Tehran too. Russia and Iran, for example, have uh, an agreement between their banks to exchange information which doesn't require going through the Swiss system because both Russia and Iran have become the, um, which are also energy exporters, of course, but they have become the target of, of US unilateral sanctions. And similarly, the Chinese are developing a digital yuan, a central bank-controlled digital yuan, digital currency, which will enable them to sidestep this SWIFT system and be and not be controlled by by the US Treasury, basically. The US Treasury has a little section called OFAC, the Office of Financial Assets Control, which it uses to impose these unilateral fines on on other entities like European banks, for example, and the, those banks, they pay these fines because they want to keep doing business in the US. So they fear the US sanctions. That's why the Europeans weren't able to break with the US over the, the so-called nuclear deal with Iran, which they had different views on because really the European economy, the European large companies are very um, cross-linked, cross-invested with US companies. And so where that's the case, the US Treasury feels that it can intervene and impose penalties on on people that are breaking US unilateral rules. So you say it's going to be very difficult to defeat those US universal rules? It's difficult, but as I said, the, the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians in particular are doing that at the moment. In Latin America, they've been, um, there's been a strong move in trade, in current trade, to move away from the dollar. The first step was with bilateral swaps. So you find with Argentina and China, for example, they will use their own currencies to uh, engage in trade. And uh, the same sort of thing with Iran and Russia, for example. So there are there is some bypassing of it, but it's not as widespread as the SWIFT system and the, the dollar still. Um, but the role of the dollar in international trade has declined from, used to be something like three quarters some years ago, and now it's 
down to less than half, basically. But there are still very big stocks of dollars. I mean, Japan and China hold over a trillion dollars in in dollar terms, in, in terms of their reserves, but they're not increasing that. They don't want to increase that. They want to diversify. So there's sort of a soft diversification away from the dollar and the construction of an, of actually a viable alternative to the SWIFT hasn't arrived yet, but it's coming. You're talking about the impact of the US economic power on different aspects, but their client state, if you might like to call it that, Israel, seems to doesn't seem to impact on them at all. Well, because they're integrated with the US system, and if you're integrated with the US system and doing what the US wants, and the Israeli regime um, agrees with everything the US does at the United Nations, for example, that's one way you can see they're integrated, basically. But um, if you're integrated, there's no, you know, there are there are carrots and sticks in the system, you know, and so the Israelis get what around four billion a year from the US. They're on a drip feed, effectively economically. They get weapons from the US and from Germany, from some of the other European companies, basically. So they are integrated into that system. But little countries like Libya that were not integrated are at risk, particularly when they're isolated. You know, in the case of Syria, Syria had a strong historic relationship with Russia and the Soviet Union before it. So Syria was able to resist more effectively where Libya being isolated was not. So countries are able to resist this power, but it's very difficult when there isn't a a clear alternative that they can turn to. And now with the BRICS and the SCO, there are prospect of an alternative is something that... And that's why you see a big rush, really, of African countries and Latin American countries wanting to join the BRICS because they really are realising that these Western institutions are something that um, has been strangling them and and there is the possibility of of an alternative emerging. And where does Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states fit into this? Well, very interesting question because Saudi Arabia... Uh, up until quite recently, would have, would have been regarded as one of the key uh, satellites, if not allies, of the US, because the US doesn't really have allies. They they want to dominate all of them, including the Europeans. You see the Europeans accepting the subordinate role in relation to Russia these days, and Japan did that in the past, basically. But the Saudis, uh, which were an important agency of control of the US in the Middle East um, until recently, apparently were becoming very resentful of uh, being used up, being exploited. You might remember Donald Trump some years ago, really in a, in a very cynical and, and crude, typically crude Trump way, said the Saudis were just a cash cow and they would have to do what they're told or they'd be destroyed or they'd fall apart. You know, So they were humiliated. The Saudis have been humiliated and they were looking for a chance for some counter leverage. Of course, this is dangerous because any... Any close collaborator of the U.S. that looks for counter leverage, you think of Noriega in Panama, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, once they start to look for some independence, they put themselves at risk. But the Saudis have done this, and they they seem to know how far they can go to get away with it. So when Biden went to them recently um, demanding that they pump more oil because of the energy crisis, which was affecting Europe in particular because, after all, the U.S. had tried to blockade huge energy exporters, a series of them, Venezuela, Iran, and Russia. And that was a major cause of the, of the energy crisis in, um, in Europe, even if the US appeared to be doing well out of it by selling more expensive gas, natural gas, to the, um, to the Europeans. But the Saudis refused to pump more oil. 
and they decided to collaborate with Russia in terms of their, Russia collaborates with the OPEC countries in terms of controlling supply and controlling price in the, in the oil market. So the, the Saudis have made some significant moves, independent moves in recent times. Uh, another notable move was the China, the China brokered uh, reconciliation they had with Iran. I mean, the US was very happy to use the Saudis against Iran and pretend that a lot of the conflict in the Middle East was some sort of rivalry between the Saudis and Iran. There was that rivalry, but of course the US was behind the um, Saudi side of it, pushing the Saudis to attack what they considered their key strategic rival in the region, Iran. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR, and I'm speaking to political economist Tim Anderson, and we're travelling around the Middle East, around the world, the changes in the world, the rise of BRICS and the fall of the dollar. And where does the hopeful phasing out of oil fit into what you've been talking about? The phasing out of the petrodollar, it means that if people are selling oil now, for example, with the Saudis and China, China, the Chinese have a an exchange system now based in Shanghai where they are going to, for example, pay the Saudis in Chinese yuan for the oil. So there's already some breakthroughs in that area. It's not universal yet, and the Chinese don't really want the yuan to dominate in the way that the US dollar dominated the system for for some decades, because there are some downsides to having your currency overvalued too. It allows you to buy a lot of things, but it damages your your industry at home, and, and the Chinese have seen that basically, that you know the, the, the cost of US manufacturing has destroyed US manufacturing um, recent decades, basically. So, but there there are some initiatives such as that, such as um, the the Saudis accepting Chinese yuan as payments for their oil, for example. So that's where this um, the soft way of talking about it is diversification away from the dollar, and virtually everyone is talking about that these days, except for the US. But it certainly is starting to undermine the the power of the dollar in international transactions. So there are other ways to pay for things, acceptable ways to pay for things other than in US dollars these days. And more about the phasing out of the fossil fuels. How is that going to impact on the world economic order? Well, there's not much phasing out of fossil fuels no, going on, really. In there? the future. The major, yeah, the major so-called um, uh, ecologically sustainable initiatives I mean, the major driver of that these days is China. China has more than the next 10 countries combined in invested in, in sustainable energy um, these days. But it's still using a lot of oil. It's using a lot of coal, for example. Um, but it's, it's the major investor in, in sustainable energies, alternative to fossil fuels. But nevertheless, fossil fuels are remaining up there, particularly in the cold countries. You know, that's why this big battle over, over Russian gas and the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline and the, you know, the US then stepping into the breach and saying, hey, we'll, we'll sell you gas from North America at a much more expensive price, but at least you won't be at the mercy of the of the Russians. You know, So that whole play has showed to us that um, energy, cheap energy, affordable energy is still a big player in the world today. And it's playing an important role because European industry itself was very dependent on on cheap energy. And now that the price of that energy has gone up, there's a big collapse in, in uh, for example, German industry. You know that, That's why I say that the, the Europeans are really, in many respects, sacrificing their 
games in in recent decades by being drawn into this um, this war with Russia, basically um, an economic war with Russia. Even though they're still buying Russian energy oil through India, through China, for example, but nevertheless, um, the U.S. was very keen for a long time to sabotage the the normalisation of relations between Russia and Europe because. They, they, the, the North Americans see that as a threat to their domination of, of Western Europe. You've mentioned most of the member, members of the BRICS. What about Brazil? So Brazil was really, uh, under the, the extreme right-wing regime of Bolsonaro, was alienated from that process. It didn't break from BRICS under Bolsonaro, but there was no real momentum coming there. Now that Lula has been re-elected. Lula da Silva has been re-elected as president of Brazil. He's re-energized, first of all, the the regional blocs that were created by Hugo Chavez some some decade ago, the CELAC and the UNASUR, for example, but also the BRICS. So um, Brazil, for example, appointed a former president, Dilma Rousseff, as president of the BRICS Bank just recently uh, and during um, Lula's visit to, to China some months ago. So um, Brazil under Lula has resumed its powerful influence in, in the BRICS group. And it's, it's important because it's not just Brazil, which is a big enough country, a couple of hundred million people with a lot of resources, but also Brazil is a leader of the, the South American bloc, UNASUR and, and the CELAC. So very important relationships with Argentina and Venezuela and so on in, in the rest of Latin America. So bringing the rest of Latin America into the BRICS block, for example, is, is going to be an important role in, in the near future that Brazil is going to play. And how do you believe the war in Ukraine is impacting on Russia? Well, it's the war in Ukraine has, in the short term, it looks like the US has gained from it by gaining its strategic goal of breaking relations between Russia and and Europe and Germany in particular, um, including you know, the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, which was really something that was of great benefit to the to German industry and, and to Western Europe. They succeeded in that, and then now they're selling energy to North American energy to the Europeans. And and uh, the, the U.S. economy has benefited from that at the expense of the European economy. But what it has done, uh, what that split or the the, the, the attempt to the, the long-term attempt, really, it's been on the strategic uh, agenda of the U.S. for some time to drive a big wall through um, Eastern Europe to block the, the Russian and also the Far Eastern uh, relations, um, you know, Chinese relations with, with Western Europe. Although that seems to have succeeded, it's also driving the pace of developing these alternatives, the alternatives to the dollar, the alternatives to the, the Swiss system, for example. So Russia has, um, on the one hand, moved with self-sufficiency measures and uh, building up its alternative markets, you know, selling selling its um, its oil, for example, to and other manufactured products to other markets other than Western Europe, basically. So it's helped develop those alternatives and push the Russians into, push the pace of developing an alternative financial system because the Russians, like the Iranians, are now blocked from the Swiss system completely. Um, so, of course, they're forced to um, create a, an alternative to the Swiss system, which was talked about for some time but really wasn't materialised. Now that's starting to be materialised. As I said, the Russians and the Iranians already have information exchange between hundreds and hundreds of their banks 
Um, so um, financial relations between Russia and Iran and also increasingly with China are starting to see alternatives. I believe, for example, those alternatives that Russia created with Iran will gradually pass on to the other allies of Iran in, in West Asia, to Iraq and to Syria, to Lebanon, if if they can get past the political crisis in Lebanon, for example. So really the, the, the war in Ukraine has forced the pace of, of building these sorts of alternatives because whatever countries initially thought of the the Russian invasion or special military operation in Iran, uh, in Ukraine, sorry, they uh, are now seeing that um, they are very vulnerable to, to these sorts of proxy wars and interventions which might all of a sudden upset their upset their um, their economies. For example, Iran, uh, the Iranian president has recently been in Africa signing contracts to start Iranian motor vehicle industry production in East Africa and Kenya. And the representative from Zimbabwe who was at those meetings said, look, Iran and ourselves are under um, similar sorts of economic blockades. You may remember Zimbabwe was hit with uh, European and North American sanctions because there was a land reform process which began 20 years after independence and they all accused Zimbabwe of human rights violations and so on because of the appropriation of large um, white land holdings in Zimbabwe. So there, there's a great depth of feeling across Latin America, across parts of Asia, across Africa, that they are sharing a lot in common with what's been happening to Russia and and other important countries like Iran. And how's China getting on with its neighbours? China's got some plays hardball with some of its neighbours, um, partly for this reason. You know, the US has something like 800 military bases around the world. About 300 or so of them are surrounding China. And the US has not signed the UNCLOS, the Convention on the Law of the Sea, for example. Um, but it demands that China complies with with the, the law of the sea. Now, China has disputes with most of its neighbours because it, it has some rather ambitious claims in terms of offshore islands. So that has created a conflict with Vietnam, with the, the Philippines, um, because China really wants strategically to control some of these offshore islands and so that they aren't used as a base against China. You notice, for example, the Philippines already has a lot of Vietnam doesn't, but Philippines has a lot of U.S. bases. And if they are colonised as as U.S. forward bases against China, uh, China sees that as a strategic threat. So in a similar way to Russia was very sensitive to the U.S. effectively building up a military force in Ukraine against Russia, China is very concerned about potential U.S. allies in the South China Sea being used as a staging post for U.S basis to be used as type of, what do they call it, containment against Russia. I mean, that's one of the main reasons why the U.S. is still, U.S. Um, occupation forces are still in the south, southern part of the Korean Peninsula, for example, because the U.S. wants a foothold there to contain or surround China. So in response, the Chinese government has really been quite aggressive, I suppose, with, just with its neighbours, um, because it has security concerns, I think legitimate security concerns that those neighbours, particularly the ones that are collaborating with the US and allowing US military bases, are going to be um, used to try and surround and contain and control China. I mean, also the US naval presence in the region is one of the things that's helped drive the, the Belt and Road Initiative, that the Chinese say, OK, our 
commerce with the rest of the world is going to be have a lot more to do with land infrastructure, rail and road networks across the Eurasian continent than trying to ship everything out and confronting this U.S. naval presence, which is trying to contain us and, and, and block us in. You know, there's a there's a naval war going on at the moment that the U.S. has with Iran, for example, that Iranian ships have been hijacked and then the Iranians have responded in kind. And now the U.S. is increasing some of its military presence in the in the Middle East, supposedly in response to the Iranian threat. But really, it's because the U.S. has has these unilateral so-called sanctions, which in their eyes, allows them to seize an Iranian ship. They say this is, this is um, you know, illegal shipment of, of Iranian oil, which is under U.S. unilateral sanctions. You may have noticed also there's a bit of a dispute at the moment in the Gulf of Mexico that some of the companies don't want to offload seized Iranian oil there because they worry that it's going to get them into trouble with Iran now because Iran is starting to be more assertive in international affairs, basically, and they will respond tit for tat with the seizure of ships. So the Chinese have, have in a sense, have been encouraged into their Belt and Road Initiative by the fact that the US has played this very aggressive role with naval blockades. As you said, the US has over 700 bases around the world. What's the cost benefit or the cost deficit for all those bases? And also the, the huge amount of money of the economy of the US that goes into keeping those bases and keeping the military on a war footing, I suppose. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, there's a bill at the moment, the NDAA, a bill in, in the US Congress, which is approaching a trillion dollars, basically. And, but that's the sort of the annual type of commitment that they make to the, their overall military and, and so-called national security budget. And they tack a lot of things onto it and so on. But it's true that the US military machine is massively expensive and of course they do things in a very expensive way too you know it's notorious that a lot of their technology you see it in ukraine at the moment very expensive technology being knocked out by relatively cheap suicide drones the lancets that the russians are using you know so the u.s does everything in a very expensive way to pump up to inflate its um notorious military industrial complex you know they big U.S. companies are making a lot of money out of every war that they get involved in, in particular the Ukraine war, because of their, they're getting a lot of their relatively state-of-the-art and expensive equipment there and, and seeing how long it's going to last, you know. But that huge industry, um, I saw there was quite a good interview with the former U.S. official Lawrence Wilkerson, who's now an academic, uh, and he was saying it's a massive, it's a massive industry, but it's unsustainable because... It depends upon the role of the dollar. Again, we're coming back to the role of the dollar. The, the fact that everyone is still demanding U.S. dollars, not because they want to buy U.S. products or invest in the U.S. necessarily, but because they're using those dollars to simply engage in commerce with everyone else. And that has artificially inflated the, the value of the dollar to the benefit of U.S. purchasing power. Once that starts to erode, once the petrodollar starts to erode, once people are buying and selling oil and gas and so on in, in other currencies, whether it's a BRICS gold-backed currency or the, or the Chinese digital yuan or whatever it is, that's going to have a big impact on the, the sustainability of U.S. spending power. You, know, you may have heard also that the U.S. has this massive budget deficit. They've got a huge debt, about $32, $33 trillion, while 
the, the World Bank and the IMF for many decades were arguing on behalf of the US that other countries had to live within their means and engage in export industries to pay off their, their debts and not go into public debt and so on. The US has this massive debt which is only able to be sustained because of the, the, the role of the dollar internationally. So these things are interconnected. The, the capacity of the US to keep uh, funding a trillion dollars a year military security industry is very closely tied to the role of the, the dollar in the world. And we haven't even talked about the impacts of climate change. Yes, well, that's something that's, that's gone under the radar, hasn't it? You know, because people are, are focused on very much more short-term concerns when, for example, the gas is the gas pipeline from Russia to Germany is blown up. You know, then people are focused on. Uh, the cost of living for basic citizens in Europe, uh, but also the destruction of, of industry which depended on cheap energy. So all of those things are uh, focus the mind on, on short-term needs. Thank you once again, Tim. Welcome, Tim. And many thanks once again to Dr. Tim Anderson. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.